Hello, everybody. Welcome to Reverb. I'm Alex Helberg. And I'm Calvin Pollock. And on today's show, we're going to be speaking uh, with Jenny Rice, an associate professor of writing, rhetoric, and digital media at the University of Kentucky. She's going to be talking to us a little bit about her work on archives and rhetoric, how evidence is used to support particular kinds of claims, and particularly as it relates to things like conspiracy theory discourse. Uh, we also touch a little bit on the lessons that we ourselves as you know, academics or people in public can think about our ways of using evidence to construct claims uh, as well. Um, hey, uh, Calvin, we're we're supposed to be recording. What are you What are you doing over there? Uh, I mean, can't you see? I can't mean, you uh, see what I'm doing? Uh, well, yeah, I can. It's pretty our, important, man. Our, our our listeners. So just just so all of you know, Calvin right now has a he's constructed a corkboard in our office. He's currently connecting. What what is that? You're using red string and 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 pins to connect pictures. It looks like Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, and and the Church of Scientology. Yeah, look, man. I I don't know if you know. I I would hope that you know as as well constructed a diagram as this would speak for itself. But you know, if if you if you need me to spell it out for you, um, these two guys have done a lot of work together. They've like, are you aware that they've they've been in the same film? Um, They've appeared in the same film. Well, well, yeah. I mean, I, everybody's seen Goodwill Hunting. Like, yeah. I mean, obviously. Okay, okay. They they both live in the same city. Um, well, well, they yeah. live and work in in the same city and yeah, in, that, in, in in the same state. That that too. forms a lot of the cultural backdrop of their work. I don't. I, I guess I don't see what you're driving at here. My point, man, is that they are part of a social network that is, you know, controlling. That ha well, first of all, that has a lot of power. Okay. Does this not freak you out? I mean, not not. I have really. tapes, man. I have tapes of them appearing in movies together. <laughs> did you? You didn't record them off of live broadcast TV, did you? I can't. I'm not allowed to say that. Okay. Uh, my lawyer has instructed me that I should not. I probably shouldn't even be talking about this to you, but just know that I will soon be producing reams and reams, tapes and tapes of evidence that these two are in a powerful social network that dominates a major industry uh, in this country. Well, I, I guess we're just going to have to take your word for it, uh, you know, without having seen your evidence. So, All right. Well, anyway, uh, <laughs> so we're going to go ahead and dive into the show today. It's a great interview. Uh, we're really proud of this one, and we hope that you enjoy it. Hey everybody, Alex here for just a quick note before the interview. Uh, Calvin was a little bit too wrapped up in his conspiracy theorizing about Ben Affleck, Matt Damon, and the film industry uh, to do this interview with me. So in just a moment here, you're going to hear Reverb editorial team member Ryan Mitchell, uh, who is willing to join me on this one. I hope you enjoy it. So welcome, everybody. Uh, so today we're speaking with Dr. Jenny Rice, an associate professor of writing, rhetoric, and digital studies at the University of Kentucky. She's published academic work on public rhetoric, affect, archives, and new media writing. And she's here on Carnegie Mellon's campus today to give a talk entitled Empty Archives, Evidence, Conspiracy, and Anomalous Claims. Jenny, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's great to have you here. It's great to be here. Yeah. So I was wondering, maybe we could start out just talking a little bit about uh, your current work and your current project. So could you describe a little bit about what you're currently working on and how you sort of came to uh, the project that you're with right now? So I'm currently finishing my second book, which is tentatively titled Awful Archives. I keep squeezing in archives into everything that I do. 
And it's sometimes I tell people that it's a book about conspiracy theory just because it's a shorthand and people kind of wrap their head around it. But it's it's actually very much about evidence. And so the way that I came to this is not necessarily accidental, but it's this wasn't the trajectory I thought I was going to go on. Originally, a few years ago, I found myself really interested in the idea of expertise and especially like lay expertise. So I was curious about almost, if you could imagine, like lay rhetoricians. So how people who aren't necessarily trained in argument think about argument, how they do the kind of evidence gathering, how they think about counter arguments and all of those kinds of things. And so I was thinking, okay, well, I, I needed some kind of, you know, case study or group, you know, to look at. And, I'm, and I started to think about conspiracy theorists um, in general, but, or, you know, and that could be a pejorative term, but basically people who have some version of official events and they challenge those events. So I thought, okay, well, these are a good example of folks who aren't necessarily trained as rhetoricians, but are sort of doing that work. They're collecting lots of evidence, making arguments, thinking about how to engage with people who are maybe skeptical. And so I did the IRB stuff and, you know, kind of made contact with a particular group of the, that were very prominent, so 9-11 truthers, so people basically who, you know, challenged the official story of what happened on September 11th. And it was just because it's such a prolific group and they tend to have, especially at that time, a lot of meetups, conferences, and they were just really willing to talk to me. So I started doing interviews and attending meetups and conferences. And the more that I did that, the more I found myself interested in how they were talking about evidence and really using it. So the idea then of the expertise kind of fell out and the angle was more about how kind of what I was would call anomalous claims. And so starting to think, not necessarily, there's a lot of, there's really good, even in, in rhetorical studies, there's really good literature about conspiracy theories, you know, what what's going on in those arguments and how do you respond. But there's also a lot of research about how difficult it is to challenge somebody who has this kind of, because the evidence tends to be self-sealing. You know, the more counter evidence you provide tends to get sucked into the narrative just to prove exactly what they had originally believed. And so I just kept spending time with them and thinking, okay, it, it didn't seem to me that we really fully understood what evidence is doing, like what is the life world of evidence? How does this work? And so in each chapter, I'm sort of looking at different cases, not necessarily always conspiracy theories, but examples of people who are using evidence in ways that frankly, you know, we don't often think about in our scholarship. You know, evidence doesn't quite work the way that we say, teach our students, for example. And then how do you, how do we respond? What is the fitting response to that? So in a nutshell, that's kind of it, my, my book. And, and it's been, it's been really interesting for me to kind of, I kept thinking, okay, well, in this last chapter, that's when I'll have my answer, you know, I'll find it, I'll, I'll land upon it. How do you respond? And more and more as the book got done, I started to think, oh, man, I don't know. I, I don't know. And, you know, so that was a really interesting process of thinking through kind of a response in a different register, which is kind of what I ultimately landed on. 
So one of the central pieces of your argument is that conspiracy thinkers have a particular type of archive yeah. that they draw from when they're trying to provide evidence for their claims. Yeah. Now, I think that for a lot of people, archives are traditionally associated with like highly curated privileged yes. spaces of knowledge, mm-hmm. housing. Right, you yes. go into a library, right. you enter the archive, and yeah. it's this very like sterile space. They give you a number two pencil. Yes. yes. Yeah, you they can monitor only... you all the <laughs> yes. time. Yes. Um, what was your thinking for using the concept of archive in a almost metaphorical sense for thinking about how evidence was being used? Yeah. You know, early on in this project, as I began to use archive, I was incredibly nervous about how that would be received because I have plenty of friends who do that kind of very sort of traditional or scholarly version of archival work, which is great. And I, I, I decided to stick with the idea of archives because at some point, you know, I do actually go into different archives. But more than that, I, I like the idea of thinking about what an archive is, is sort of like a a body, a holding of references, you know, perhaps literal, but we have them, you know, so we even have like, there's a popular archive of certain things. So like, for example, any kind of national tragedy, we kind of have this popular archive that we reach back into in order to make our claims, or say like family stories, for example, or family pictures, you know, this is, it's a very loose sense of archive, but I like the idea that we can think of sort of the archival gesture as that which is reaching back in order to put forward some different type of claim. And, you know, I I sort of thought, well, am I stretching this term too far? And like I said, I I stick with it because I think that it, it helps to kind of put parameters around what I'm trying to talk about and describe in terms of how evidence works, how it functions. Um, there's kind of this reaching back. And as we went on, you know, sort of the the process of research went on, I suddenly became really interested in how, what I'm calling empty archives, but archives that people tend to assume exist, and they might not actually exist, you know, they might not be there, or they might not be accessible, but it doesn't really even matter. So I was just talking with somebody just a few minutes ago about those infamous, what, 30,000 emails from Hillary Clinton, right? right? which we don't have access to, are just literally not available to us, and yet those become a reference point, evidence for claims, right? She's done something wrong, and so it's a weird situation where you have archives that both exist and then also don't, and yet they still function in a kind of evidentiary way. Yeah, I, well, I was going to say, I, I, that was literally exactly what I thought as I was reading through some of your prior work on, on conspiracy and archives. Yeah. And I actually did a Twitter advanced search for Donald Trump's Twitter account to see how many, how often he referenced the 33,000 yeah. emails. And it's so often used as an evidentiary right. basis for yeah. a claim about, about impropriety or yeah. wrongdoing. So, I mean, this is absolutely at work in public discourse. And it travels, you know, if you, you expand say on Twitter, for example, or social media, you find that it becomes almost solidified. It becomes a thing from which, and so it's interesting because we can say, well, look, it's not, we don't know really what is there, but also that doesn't seem to matter, right? Right. Because it is there in some sense in a functional way for certain certain people. So this leads to the question, which I'm sure is something that you've, like you said, are thinking about all the time. It's, it, disrupts traditional deliberative processes when you have evidence that is there by way of the fact that people say that it's there Mm -hmm. well there's not actually anything to pull from how do you think this 
focus on archives, which may be empty, mm-hmm. influences how we can come together in any type of deliberative forum. Yeah. Well, so that was the that was part of the question that I was like, I'll get to that. So, um, but I I think of this. I go back to just that old Lloyd Bitzer idea of a fitting response. Right. That rhetoric is you know always looking for that fitting response. And so that was kind of my driving question. What is the fitting response? And I, I took a lot from um, Calvin Schrag's work on fitting responses. And one thing that he says, and this is kind of the direction that I ultimately go in, is that we can think of a response as something, we can think of it like a one-on-one, like my interlocutor, you know, that I'm responding to. I'm saying, look, you're using faulty evidence or you're using it in very poor ways. Therefore, your argument's not valid. But what Trog says is that remember that that interlocution takes place in a wider context, the social, the polis. And so we can also think about response not just to the interlocutor, to that one person or to that one set of claims, or that one set of evidence, but you're responding in some way to the polis. And so it may be, this is what I mean by response, maybe in a different register, that at some point, like if I'm talking to somebody who's making, you know, truly an awful claim or a faulty claim, that as a responder, my response may be not to that individual, but in some way to future discourse. So, you know, now that brings up the situation, like you still need to respond to, you know, Trump's claims when he says, for example, that he would have won the popular election if millions of illegal voters hadn't voted, which there's no real evidence that that is a true statement. And yet still it functions for him and supporters in that way, that needs to be called out. And it has been, and yet it doesn't, it's not satisfying, you know, it's not, doesn't fix it. So one thing to think about is our response can be both, you know, to the claim itself, to the interlocution, but also sort of how do we respond in a way that kind of puts a response into circulation for the public. So it's almost like a, you know, future, um, for future discourse. Um, right. and, and that's that's something that I've thought a lot about too in I mean because it seems like we're living in a time where it's more difficult to argue with argue with people or even just to have a discussion about yeah. certain political opinions because you know it, it appears like a face threat you know right. if you're if you're coming at somebody and disagreeing with something that seems like the basis of a person's worldview yeah um, so what you're suggesting is kind of going even beyond saying like I don't disagree necessarily with you but I'm, I'm more putting out an idea into public to be recirculated in other kinds of yeah. ways. What I hear uh, when you talk about this is how the fact that most of our kinds of conversations, the way we're confronting people who have these egregious claims, is in a digital platform. So mm-hmm. circulation, yeah. you can't control circulation anyway. Yeah. And how obviously there were conspiracy theories before sure. the yeah. internet. Mm-hmm. But the internet definitely gives them visibility and yeah. lots of more members. Mm-hmm. Not right. only conspiracy theories, but also things like the men's rights movement right. or something like that. So in this way, it seems like what you're arguing is that we can no longer, for various reasons, confine ourselves to a rhetorical situation model yeah. where there's one moment I'm talking to a person, here are these constraints, right. here are my goals, because the goals become become future-directed yeah. and they become directed towards faceless others, yeah. right? Yeah. I kind of also wanted to turn us to 
one of the things that I found really compelling about your your 2017 article, which we'll link to in Philosophy and Rhetoric, that that deals with specifically with conspiracy theories, mm-hmm. and you speak to the question of what makes conspiracy theories kind of tempting right. to believe in, or what is, yeah. what exactly is it that that people like so much about these yeah. kinds of theories? Could you talk a little bit about what goes into conspiracy thinking and why sure. that's tempting? You know, this is why I I. I go back and I really like the prior work that's been done, especially on, say, like, comm studies side of the rhetoric division, if we still can say that. But people have gone and said, you know, here are sort of the things that conspiracy discourse does for people. And one of the conclusions that didn't ever seem completely satisfying to me was that in some way conspiracy discourse gives meaning to a disorderly world. And it does, certainly does, right? You know, I mean, I look at something like Sandy Hook truthers, so people who believe that what happened, the massacre at Sandy Hook, was all just a false flag perpetrated by the government to take away our rights or guns or something like that, that no children were actually killed. These are all crisis actors. I mean, it's a really awful, truly awful for all kinds of reasons. But if you think about it in the context of comfort, it's somehow more comforting to believe that this is a a false flag perpetrated that these are all just child actors and you know being paid off and planted there than what truly happened which doesn't seem to have much of a an answer to it you know and it makes more sense to say well the government wants to take away our guns and that's why they're doing this versus you know sometimes we don't see these things truly coming right. and that's that's even more awful to think about and so there's there's that aspect as well the the thing that I, I got interested in, though, is that this kind of conspiracy discourse does something else, which is it's never going to come to a completion, right? It's always ongoing. So you're always building it up. It's not like you've, we've ever seen a conspiracy theory sort of reach its conclusion and go, well, <laughs> I'm done here. It's all done. Yeah. And, you know, it will lead to something else. And so that's an important thing, too, because I think especially for counter responses because if you like say somebody who's deeply invested in this and say look everything you're doing is is incorrect faulty irrational it's that you are in some way missing the bigger point which is that it's the building up of this thing that is in some way satisfying and meaningful and so that's why it's so hard to get somebody to disinvest from that particular belief because it's all about the building, the the making of these things. And so there's really good reasons for having compassion, coming at somebody who is making truly egregious claims. There's, there's good arguments for coming at it with at least some level of compassion or empathy or something like that. But if you you know really scratch your head and think, why are you not getting this? Why can I not persuade you that you are way off base? understanding that that's where the level of investment is kind of makes sense right yeah or, or even thinking about like I, I, a lot of what seems to be the new tactic of news media organizations and other other kinds of you know popular media outlets has been uh, fact checking all right. that we need all that yeah. we need to do is just is just provide the correct sure. information and yeah. that's and that's gonna that's gonna fix everything right. but but you're but you kind of argue that that's that's an insufficient kind of response right i think you know and, it, and it's important to do that we have to have fact checking you have to call those things out when they're incorrect but there's also when people turn around and think why is that not 
why is everybody not like, oh, okay, well, then we made a big mistake. What is that? And there's, there's a researcher named Brendan Nyan, who's a political scientist, but he does all kinds of really fascinating work on not just conspiracy thinking, but also um, sort of like, you know, basically very flawed thinking. And his question is very much the same, which is, why is it that sometimes, if you take the case of people who are anti-vaccination, for example, he, he looks at that particular group and says, why is it that in one study, you, you know, they will show sort of very compelling arguments that vaccinations, for example, don't lead to autism, they don't cause autism, they're very safe. You can show people these and they will say, yeah, I, I actually find that evidence persuasive. And at the same time, those parents then also said, I'm still not going to, to do that. And, and Nyan calls it the backfire effect, you know, so that basically you're going to double down on it because you have an investment in certain beliefs. There's an affective level of investment. So I think it's that simply providing facts and evidence, even if it's right on, spot on, really strong, compelling, it doesn't always work rhetorically. One of the things that I really enjoyed also about your philosophy and rhetoric piece is touching on exactly what you just said, which is how we're coming to contact with the knowledge-making practices are no longer as simple as we thought that they were. Yeah. And it's something that you talk about shifting our focus instead of thinking about knowledge-making or epistemics, mm-hmm. thinking about an aesthetic epistemic. Yeah. Can you explain to us what an aesthetic epistemic is? Yeah. And what that means for approaching people who might redouble on their ideas if they're confronted with just the hardline facts. Yeah. So, I mean, if you think about epistemic, never outside of that, it's the way that we understand the world, understand meaning. It's how we come to put, you know, significations on everything. And at the epistemic level, you know, you would think if I'm teaching a student, for example, an undergraduate student, I'm you know, going to teach them, hey, you need to always have persuasive evidence, and here's how you make this, or also listen for fallacies, you know, listen for these things. But we also know every time I teach fallacies, I always think it's not as if, you know, if you hear somebody making this post hoc fallacy, you're going to be like, boom, your argument's done, and nobody's going <laughs> to listen to you. That's just not the case. So there's also what I, what I would call, not just me, others too, is there's kind of this aesthetic dimension to it, or sense, we could just say too. And in that way, it almost, it's kind of like you could tell somebody, so go back to the anti-vaxxers, you can tell somebody, look, your belief that vaccinations cause autism is just not scientifically valid, that doesn't address the feeling, right, the fear, that investment in that way. Or, on the other hand, you know, certain arguments will look particular ways. So if somebody presents an argument that may be, say, very rational, valid, you know, cut by the book. We also know that how it's presented matters, you know, so you can be very turned off by something, which is has nothing to do with that epistemic level with what it means, right, right. but that's that other sense level. I just don't like it, right? I just don't care for it, um, almost like an attraction or repulsion kind of thing. And so I was trying to think through how those function, and not just in conspiracy discourse, because it's not like I want to pick on people and say they have this really sick form of rhetoric, because we all are doing these things all the time. In some ways, they're just sort of the most vivid (laughs) examples of these. It's almost like this kind of exaggerated way, but we all 
practice these things. And it's not as if somehow we're not, we shouldn't, or we're going to get away from it or anything. For me, it really is a question of how does this kind of knowledge change or shape how we respond, which is really my, was my question, really. Yeah. So this brings me to something that you used to frame your initial thinking about your project, which is lay appeals to evidence. Yeah. So how is it that we can think about these aesthetic dimensions or these sense dimensions for evidence as being um, in conflict with maybe more privileged spaces for knowledge making? And what I'm trying to get at here is a claim that you seem to be making, whereas there is a level where conspiracy thinking is open to things that we would seemingly think are completely contradictory. Yeah. And how can it be in your estimation that conspiracy thinkers can maintain arguments where in any kind of official sphere would be completely ludicrous and fallacious? Yeah. So one thing, and I'm, I'm not quite sure that this will answer the question, but Adorno and others in the, their authoritarian personality did this study on anti-Semitism. So, you know, they're, and they had a vested interest in it because it's right after World War II. And, you know, so they, of course, escaped Germany as Jews. So they have a vested interest in kind of asking, like, what leads to anti-Semitism. And so they gave this, they did all of these studies with, with people and kind of, you know, did agree, disagree kinds of surveys. So they would say, like, do you agree with the statement Jews are too isolated from the community. They just tend to prefer their own. And so certain percentage of people say, yes, I agree with the statement. But the a, there's a correlation between people who would agree with that statement and also agree with the statement, Jews are too intermingled. They try to be just like us. And, you know, so it's almost like they're not isolated enough. And, you know, it's interesting to, and he, they ask, how could both of, how could you hold both of these beliefs together, right? You're either believe they're too isolated or that they're too intermingled, but how do you hold both? And he said it. their response is that what is really at function here is just this, what he calls a nuclear idea, we could call an ideology, just basically this idea that, like, I don't like Jews. I hope that clip doesn't get, like, isolated and, like, so you're like... But it's like there's this this nuclear idea, this core belief that gets sort of, I almost think of it like a, a wobbly table, you know, that it's whatever the belief is, whatever it takes, that discourse, it doesn't really matter that you would say this is kind of fallacious thinking just on its own. Years later, there was there's another, I think I cited it in that philosophy and rhetoric piece, there's a study that does much the same thing with conspiracy believers. So they found very much the same thing. So, for example, the, one of the questions was about Osama bin Laden's death. So do you believe that Osama bin Laden was already dead when SEAL Team 6 arrived and then they took credit for it? You know, certain percentage of people said, yes, I believe that. Do you also believe that Osama bin Laden isn't dead, that he's still alive? Just correlation between these two answers. And you think, well, that makes no sense at all, right? He's either dead or alive, which I think is the title of the, their piece, Dead or Alive, or Dead and Alive. And he comes up with this, the same response uh, that, you know, it's the larger nuclear idea is that the government is lying in some way. The government's lying to us. So this actually brings to what counts as conspiracy, because sometimes yeah. the government does sure. lie to us. Yeah, absolutely. And they can deploy the, the, the kind of conspiracy label yeah. to things that are trying to reveal these lies. Yeah. 
in your estimation, what counts as a conspiracy and who gets to decide what is a conspiracy and what's not? So I, I, I teach a class in conspiracy theories and I, I wanted to make cert, certain on the very first day that we said, you know, that I said, okay, these are slippery terms. And of course, there are in fact conspiracies that happen, you know, so we see those things. And so in a very neutral way, a conspiracy theory is simply a theory about conspiracy. So, and a conspiracy is just, you know, two or more people in agreement about something they want to keep secret. So if my kids conspire to sneak downstairs when we're asleep and eat all the cookies, <laughs> technically, you know, you've got a conspiracy going on in some way. But usually when I, when I talk about conspiracy theories, I'm really talking about people who are challenging some kind of official narrative given to them. And when I approach somebody who is doing that, I took advice from another scholar who works with the same groups, and he said, I always frame it as alternative research, you know, like alternative researchers. But so when I approach people for interviews or questions, I always approach it as, you know, you are, I don't use the term conspiracy theory, but in some way, it's not for me to decide, you know, what the real story is. I know what I believe, you know, about different things. But at the end of the day, it's not like I'm trying to, you know, disprove or, or, or prove any particular thing. I'm interested mostly in the ways that I call it anomalous claims, because in some ways they're kind of on the, the fringe. So I went back to found this really interesting etymology of behind anomaly. Yeah. And it has the sense of unevenness, you know, so kind of off kilter a little bit. Um, and so I was interested in those arguments that feel that way, off kilter. And it could very well be that, you know, maybe an argument hits us as being anomalous or off kilter. And maybe there there's some truth in them, there's some validity, but the way that we perceive it as being anomalous or off kilter, strange, awful, you know, something like that. That's that's really my my interest. I mean, because I, I don't, I, I definitely didn't want to be in a situation where I was trying to sort of say this group is, you know, 100% wrong or not because, you know, that's something different. Yeah. Well, and, and, it, and it speaks to this larger point about, I, I wanted to go back to something that you said about what I, what I see that's so useful and really fascinating about your research is that this tells us more than just, you know, how conspiracy theorists generate knowledge, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, we all... Uh, you know, have this aesthetic sense of yeah. you know claims that we're more drawn to because it's beautiful, mm -hmm. or or you know we're we're yeah. repulsed by some because they seem awful. Yeah. Um, I wanted to bring in like a really quick example from a colloquial context. Uh, it's actually I was thinking about this as I was rereading your work. It's an episode of the TV show. It's always sunny in Philadelphia. Um, in a particular episode, uh, a couple of the characters are having an argument about whether or not evolution is a valid theory. Do you know which one I'm talking about? I think so, yeah. I'm not going to stand here, present some egghead scientific argument based on fact. I'm just a regular dude. I like to drink beer. You know, I love my family. Rock, flag, and eagle. Right, Charlie? He's got a point. No, he doesn't. What? See, Charlie? These liberals are trying to assassinate my character. And I can't change their mind. I won't change my mind, because I don't have to. Because I'm an American. I won't change my mind on anything, regardless of the facts that are set out before me. I'm dug in, and I'll never change. Mac, look, you're wasting our time. You're not going to get us to not believe in evolution. And why is that? 
Because the smartest scientists in the entire world all agree that it's real. Mr. Reynolds, these were all the smartest scientists on the planet. Only problem is, they kept being wrong. Sometimes. This is insane, you fool. I'm a fool because I have more faith in the saints that wrote the Bible? Yeah, because you just read the words of a bunch of guys that you never met, and you just take it on faith that everything they wrote was true. Mm. And what makes you think what your scientists are writing is any more truer than my saints? Because there are volumes of proven data, numbers, you know, figures. There are fossil records. Oh, fossil records. Ah! I didn't even think about the fossil records. I guess I'll concede. Oh, wait, well, one more thing before I do, Mr. Reynolds. Have you seen these fossil records? Have I s Huh? Have you poured through the data yourself, the numbers, the figures? Well, no. I mean, no. Oh, interesting. So let me get this straight, Mr. Reynolds. You get your information from a book written by men you've never met. And you take their words as truth based on a willingness to believe, a desire to accept, a leap of, dare I say it, <laughs> faith? Come on, come on. Look, I mean, I don't even know how I'm supposed to respond to that. Like, oh, come on. That is a, that's a false equivalency. Just answer the question, Mr. Reynolds. Sure. Yeah. Okay. I rest my case. Oh, that got me. Yeah. Thank you, Frank. Do you want me to put me on? Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's like very like silly yeah. kind of reasoning, but it points us to I think what is what we don't often think about in the ways that we as academics even are are drawn to certain kinds of claims because they're just more familiar to our sort of community of knowledge, right. or yeah. they just make more sense yeah. to to us in in certain maybe more aesthetic kinds of ways. Well, and it, it, that reminds me of Ernesto Grassi has. Like for me, I, I always go back to that where he's he's making the argument about he's talking about first the first principle. So if you go back, you know, if knowledge at some point it's all built on principles, and then there's a first principle there, but nothing lies beneath that one is the very first one, which means in some way we have to take that on faith, you know. So you you can't keep going. It's not turtles all the way down. At some point, it's right. it's faith, and so faith or sense um, kind of underlies or whatever you want to call it, you know, before you get um, sort of rationality, you have pathos, basically, which is underlying everything else. You can build up on principles from there. You know, I know certain principles are going to happen. But our shared knowledge, our shared epistemics is built on the back, basically, of that, that sense, really. Yeah. And one of the things that you write about as being a parallel to conspiracy thinking is big data. Yeah. And that's what you were just saying reminds me that in order to kind of, some folks, not everyone, obviously, I don't want to make swap, like sweeping generalizations, but some folks try to avoid that initial leap of faith into mm -hmm. the first principle by really relying on statistics yeah. and data and yeah. hard evidence. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about why you thought to compare these two things that seem completely opposite yeah. from each other when you're talking about the um, aesthetic power of like archive building? Yeah. So I was I was interested in I go back to Aristotle's sense of megathos or magnitude and it's a really fascinating concept that he has there and and I'm sort of 
I'm, I'm pulling from it. And so I've had interesting arguments about whether I'm maybe stretching him in ways that he didn't intend. But one of the things that fascinates me about is that he's talking about how you get, in certain points, like a quantity of something, you know, or something that you can kind of wrap your head around epistemically. And that same thing can also be kind of tip over into, say, the aesthetic realm, a quality. And so I was thinking a, a lot about how that can work with, say, conspiracy discourse, where after a while, like you're building up so much, sort of like, well, look, there's all these figures here, right? There's all these statistics, and it shifts in some level to a quality, which is just this thing is bad or this thing is good. And I was thinking, well, that kind of is like, if I think about big data representations in some ways, that people like me, I don't work with big data. So if I'm, you know, looking at representations of it, sometimes they're beautiful graphic representations that it's very much a quality to it. Um, that it has sort of, you know, you can think about my colleagues at, at Kentucky in the geography department tend to do a lot of work with critical GIS and mapping. And so they'll do these beautiful representations of something that behind it has facts, numbers, quantities. And yet when I'm receiving it, I get this as a as a quality, a sense. So maybe it's the sense of, I think that at one point, you know, they do a lot of Twitter mapping. And so they've done some that have that are, you know, funny and some that are not so funny. And so, you know, one of the things that they, they did it was, you know, shared around was beer versus church. So, um, like, so if you just take the United States, how many people are tweeting about beer versus church? And then, you know, as you could probably expect, all the a lot of the church tweets tend to be in the so-called Bible Belt, right? And it's just a funny representation, but it it gives you a sense, like, oh my God, we really are, you know, steeped in the Bible Belt here. And I don't have to think about the numbers behind those things or anything like that. I'm just getting this sense in some way. I have a funny story about that happened to me. So not only do we get a sense from these big data about maybe where certain demographics live or whatever, Mm -hmm. is when it reverses and tells us what we should like. And so when we use algorithms like in Amazon to tell us what books we should watch. And just because of the kind, I share a Prime account with my family and just because of the kind of books that I'm ordering, their algorithms are all over the place. Oh, yeah. Yes. And last Christmas, my dad sent me a book that had come up on his recommended reading list. Uh, and the book was titled Santa's Husband. And it was what? a picture book that was talking about Santa being in a gay relationship with oh a man named Michael. Oh and he just sent me this email in the note that was attached to the present. It just said, this is what I have to see recommended to me in my emails. <laughs> But what that showed me was how not only do not only does big data and the kind of algorithms that it allows for give us a sense for how things are breaking up mm-hmm. across time and space, but also how we should be sensing other things in return. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so it does this weird. It does a strange alienation from your own maybe naturally felt sensations. Yeah. Like, should I have had that book? I mean, I liked it. <laughs> so there was something about it that was like super campy and yeah. terrific. Right. But it also is a moment of thinking maybe I. Maybe do I like it? Yeah, all that. I have a lot of friends who are doing work, a really good work on the the quantified self. You know, so and it's what's interesting to me about that is that it's almost like the reverse small data. So you can I can wear my Fitbit and I can see like how am I doing? You know, I look and see like that data is telling me how how am I? 
which is weird. But I think it also in terms of like for thinking about ourselves, I I sometimes jokingly, sometimes not look at my Spotify, you know, recommended stations, and I think. Is this who I am? Is this what Spotify <laughs> thinks I am? There's this Discover Weekly, and I'm like, I don't really feel like I'm this kind of person, but maybe I am. Or your Netflix recommended. I know. Right. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I guess I'm sort of into that, but maybe Netflix doesn't know me at all. Or right. maybe I don't know myself. Maybe I do like these things. I don't know. Well, or with dating apps, too, now that are oh, doing boy. the kind of big data yeah. pooling to say who yeah. who you're the best fit with. Like right. those yeah. algorithms on like, okay, Cupid or, t- or Tinder or something Match. like that. Match.com. Yeah. Match. Yeah. Match. Is, is supposedly right. known for having a really high accuracy rating for pairing up people who eventually get married. Right. So, yeah. And then, you know, some, some of that is like, it, the interesting thing about that data is that if we don't stop and think, you know, where is this pulling from? Where is this drawing from? You know, there's that sense that maybe these algorithms do know me better than I know myself you know who the perfect match is i think eHarmony makes those claims that you know they've but they have this system where they can perfectly match you and perhaps better than you could match yourself right because they're pulling from so much data mm-hmm. and our sense of the legitimacy of that data gives us a yeah gives, who are we to argue with that right. right yeah yeah we develop a sort of aesthetic around around that kind mm-hmm. of data and and trust in it in certain yeah. ways because yeah because going to bars is awful, and no one wants to meet anyone that way. Well, how many times do we pick the wrong person? Exactly, you know, it's, um, exactly. maybe data would tell me something better. I don't right. Know. Well, do I think anything, I anything think that we should that? head down over. But Probably. thank you so Thanks. much yeah, for having me. to talk to us. Thank, thank you so much for being on Reverb. We really appreciate Thanks it. Thanks so much. Thank you. Our show today was produced and edited by Alex Helberg and Calvin Pollock. Reverb's web designer is Anna Cook, and our publicity and social media team is Ryan Mitchell and Audrey Strong. You can subscribe to Reverb and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Android, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Check out our website at www.reverbcast.com. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter, where our handle is at ReverbCast. That's R-E-V-E-R-B underscore C-A-S-T. Thanks for tuning in.